I remember reading a short story when I was younger. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home. It's based on the idea that you invite Jesus into your life and the story considers your life like a house with a number of different rooms. Each room is a different part of your life and Jesus needs to be invited into each room. The story goes something like this. The lounge room was where I'd meet Jesus every morning to fellowship together. It was wonderful. But as I got busier, the time we spent together became shorter and shorter. One morning as I rushed out the door, I looked in and there was Jesus sitting patiently. I went in ashamed. I said, Master, forgive me. Have you been here all these mornings? Yes, he said, I told you I would be here to meet with you. He'd been faithful in spite of my uh, faithlessness. He continued, You've forgotten that this hour means something to me also. Remember, I love you. I value your fellowship. Now, do not neglect this hour, if only for my sake. Whatever else may be your desire, remember I want your fellowship. Or the workroom. It was where I produced things. It was pretty neglected. Jesus looked at my workbench and what little talents and skills I had. He said, this is quite well equipped. What are you producing with your life for the kingdom of God? Well, I said, Lord, this is the best I can do. I know it isn't much. I really want to do more. All right, he said, let me have your hands. Now let my spirit work through you. I know that you are unskilled, clumsy and awkward, but the Holy Spirit is the master worker. And if he controls your hands and your heart, he will work through you. And so he began to work through me. There's other rooms, but to cut a long story short, uh, finally there was the hall closet. Jesus noticed a peculiar odour, like something dead coming from it. And in that closet, behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things that I did not want anyone to know about. And certainly I did not want Christ to see them. I knew they were dead and rotting things left over from my old life and yet I loved them. I wanted them for myself uh, that I was afraid to admit they were there. I can't stay here with that smell, said Jesus. I'll move out onto the back porch. I certainly can't put up with that. I had to surrender. I'll give you the key, I said sadly, but you'll have to open the closet and clean it out. I haven't the strength to do it. I know, he said. Just give me the key, authorise me to take care of that closet and I will. So with trembling fingers I passed the key to him. He walked over to the door, opened it, took out all the rotten stuff there and threw it away. Then he cleaned the closet and painted it and fixed it all up. Well, that's just a small part of the story. It's been 40 years since I I read that, but it made a big impact on me. Uh, I think because it reflects my experience of the Christian life in so many ways. If you're a Christian, then Jesus lives in you. How does that affect your daily life? The creator, sustainer, redeemer of the universe lives in you and walks with you. You're connected to him. He guides, empowers and loves you. Is that something you're aware of and does it influence uh, you the way you think about life? Or is it just theoretical? Uh, Is having Jesus just one part of the rest of your life? 
It really comes down to the question of what's your attitude when God comes to visit? And that's what all of John's Gospel looks like, this question of God coming to visit uh, and about how we should respond when God comes to visit. Do you remember, right back in chapter 1, talking about Jesus, it began, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and then in verse 14 it said, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God dwelt with us. And we've seen his glory. God's visible presence lived among us in human form. What's your attitude when God visits? Well, chapter 1 describes two different ways that people responded to Jesus. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, it didn't recognise him. That's one response. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Some reject, some accept Jesus, some misunderstand and some see clearly, some ridicule and some seek earnestly. That's chapter 1, but here in chapter 7 we see all of those responses, all in one scene. The location is Jerusalem in the temple and the setting or the time is the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles, a big word for tents. That's all it was, the Feast of Tents. And Jesus has come to visit. Uh, Tabernacles was one of the the four major Jewish feasts and every year uh, at the end of the olive and grape harvest they'd celebrate. Uh, They'd thank God for his gifts of food and wine It was a big party and everyone would put tents up and live in the tents for a week. It was their yearly camping adventure and it would remind them of when they used to live in tents in the wilderness when God rescued them from Egypt. And there's nothing like living in an uncomfortable tent to make you thankful for your warm, dry house. And then, so here at the beginning of the chapter, John goes to the trouble of telling us that the time is the Feast of Tabernacles uh, and Jesus is in Jerusalem in the temple during the feast. So why? Why does he mention the feast? We'll never know for sure, but here's my theory. Uh, All the way through, John uses the feasts uh, as pictures that tell us something about what Jesus is like. The feasts are clues to a puzzle and Jesus is the solution. So the thing to remember is the location is the temple and the time is the feast. So with those two clues in place, I want to think about another story. This one is from 1 Kings chapter 8 in the Old Testament and it too is located at the temple And the setting or the time is the Feast of Tabernacles. Temple, Feast of Tabernacles, just like here in John 7. Uh, And it's the opening of the brand new temple by King Solomon. It's about when God comes to visit. Uh, And when that happens, God's people rejoice. Uh, At the start of 1 Kings 8, the temple's finished. King Solomon gets the whole nation together at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles and and he brings in the Ark of the Tabernacle 
the Ark of the Covenant, the box that represents God's presence. And verse 5 of 1 Kings 8 says, They sacrificed so many sheep and cattle they couldn't be counted. And then the priest put the Ark in the holy place, in the temple. And then verse 10 describes what happens. When the priest withdrew, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. God had come to visit his new temple. The cloud was God's visible presence. It was the cloud that had gone in front of the people as they travelled through the wilderness. It was a pillar of fire at night and cloud by day. God's glory is his visible presence and and now God's glory was dwelling right where the people could see. How do the people respond when God comes to visit? Well, verse 23, Solomon prays on behalf of all the people. O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below who keep your covenant of love with your servants. And then his prayer goes on to praise God because his name has dwell, is dwelling in the temple and he's with his people. So this story is about God coming to visit and Israel worships him and they recognise who they are as well and they confess their sin. And then at the end of the chapter Solomon finishes praying and he blesses all of Israel and then the king and the, the people respond by offering sacrifices to God and there's joy and there's celebration because God has come to dwell among them. So that was the first temple. God filled it with his glory, his presence and the people rejoice and they worship and they repent in response. The whole nation are united. So that was then Jump forward 950 years and Jesus, who is also God's visible glory, comes into another temple, a rebuilt temple, during the Feast of Tabernacles. The right response from people should be just the same as Solomon. It should be joyful worship and repentance. If Solomon's people rejoiced when God filled the temple with a cloud that represented him, how much more should they rejoice when the word become flesh visits, when they see God's glory, the glory of the one and only Son? That's what they should do. They should be joy from everybody. But what do we see in this chapter? Confusion, unbelief, opposition. It's the exact opposite of what they should do. The beginning of the chapter, Jesus' own brothers misunderstand him. They mock him. Brothers tend to do that, really. And verse 5 tells us why. Even his own brothers did not believe in him. And Jesus explains their response. It's terribly sad, especially when you realise he's talking about his own family. Verse 7, he says, The world hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. It's because the world is evil that it rejects Jesus and it's because Jesus speaks truly that he's hated. 
the same today, isn't it? Jesus is mocked. Christians are ridiculed and despised because we talk about sin and judgement. We say behaviour that people do is wrong. People don't like to hear that. The world hates the fact that Jesus says it's sinful and deserves judgement. That God is just and that we deserve death. The world doesn't like to hear that. Jesus is this crystal clear mirror that shows the world the way it is with every wrinkle and spot and blemish. And people don't want to know. They want to smash the mirror rather than fix up their spots. They hate Jesus because he tells them that they're evil. But for the Christian, Jesus' words are actually wonderful. He's the mirror who points out our sin. We know our hearts, we've faced our own sin and we've accepted the incredible gift that even though we're guilty, God declares us innocent in Jesus. It's a breathtaking truth. It transforms our attitude to God from hatred to joy. Well, there's the first misunderstanding. Uh, Opposing Jesus, hating him and not believing in him. Jesus hasn't even left home yet. Well, we are going to quickly move through the chapter, so if you're worrying that we're only five verses in, it's all right, we're going to move quickly. Uh, To cut a long story short, he ends up in Jerusalem, he ends up in the temple, the crowd is waiting, uh, but there's no acceptance of Jesus, there's uncertainty. The world is divided. Verse 12, some say he's good, others say he's a liar. Verse 14, Jesus begins to teach. The people are amazed that he speaks so well. Jesus says, it's because I've come from God. And down in verse 24, he finishes with a rebuke. He says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgement. In other words, respond to me the right way. See, look, respond. You you should know better. But there's still confusion. Verse 25, more questions. Have the authorities decided he's the Christ? He he can't be, can he? We know where his hometown is and uh, the Christ doesn't come from there. There's confusion. Jesus answers. Humanly speaking, he may be from Nazareth, but his true home is from his father, which is why he speaks truth. Once again, there's division and confusion. Verse 30, some want him locked up. Others put their faith in him. But Jesus answers with the climax of this whole confusing episode. The heart of the matter. He answers with what it actually means for God to visit. Have a look at verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Jesus comes to visit the temple. He is the glory of God. He's the visible presence of God himself. 
But there's another visit still to come. For all who trust in Jesus, he promises to give his spirit. To live not just in a temple, but to live in believers. In each believer, to to strengthen and guide, to comfort and encourage, to equip and to teach. That is a home visit like nothing before. In Solomon's time, God only filled the temple. But even then, the prophets looked forward to the time when God would fill all of his people, when his spirit, when Jesus himself would live in everyone who trusted him. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And his promise is that receiving his spirit, being born again, having your sins washed clean, it's like drinking a big glass of cold water on a hot day. That's what it's like. Becoming a Christian is having your thirst quenched. Receiving God's spirit will give you what you have been looking for your whole life. A thirst you've tried to satisfy with the things of this world but never succeeded. You're still thirsty, you're still unsatisfied. Living with God's spirit in you is what you were made for. It will satisfy you. Living with God's spirit in you. That's the meaning of that story I began uh, with about Jesus coming to visit and living in the home of your heart. And Jesus promises that reality to anyone who trusts him, who comes to him, who believes his words, his words about his father and then, just like Solomon, who confesses their sin. Is that something you've done? Is that something that you keep doing each day? Praying that God would fill you with his spirit make you more aware of his prompting, that God would satisfy your longings for life, that his spirit would quench your thirst for significance and purpose, for acceptance and meaning. When God comes to visit, we need to respond the right way. We need to believe and repent and receive his spirit. We need to be open to him working in us. And when you think about the Christian walk like that, that Jesus lives in you, it really transforms the way you think about life. Thinking like that affects our view of sin. We realise that God sees everything. He's right there as we choose to give in to temptation. The Spirit of Jesus grieves when we fall, when we turn our back on him and choose our way. It affects our view of prayer. Sometimes God seems distant and that our prayers have to travel a long way. But the reality is God lives in us. He's with us by his Spirit. His Spirit intercedes for us. His spirit fills in the gaps in our prayers, adds his wisdom and insight. 
Jesus is here, we can whisper to him. We don't need to shout, he's here. Thinking about Jesus living with us affects our view of our service for him, our ministry. Scary jobs don't seem quite so scary. Often we think we're on our own as we do a ministry. A job is too big for us. But God gives us his spirit, gives us exactly what we need so that we can achieve what he wants. And remembering that Jesus lives in us affects our view of evangelism. God's spirit works through us. Too often we don't speak because we're worried about making a mistake. But it is God who opens eyes and brings to repentance in his time and in his way. And so because Jesus lives in us, we can confidently tell people about him, even if we do make mistakes or not do it as well as somebody else. Because God has always brought people to himself through other people, speaking up through cracked and chipped tools like you and me. Well, one final thought. What does this say to us as a church? How do we respond in the right way as a community? In Solomon's time, the people responded with joy and unity, an incredible sense of privilege that God was dwelling with them. They didn't spend time together looking at the clock, you know, how much longer have I got to be here? Time didn't matter. Uh, and then when they did go home, they kept rejoicing. They were joyful and glad because of how good God was. That was Solomon, Solomon's time. I wonder how close we are to that experience of God dwelling with us. Now, lively music isn't everything, but I sometimes wonder whether we're so careful with having the correct songs that we lose the joy uh, I know when we had our Ghanaian brothers and sisters here, they would love to have uh, done things a little more like their church back in Ghana where there's dancing, <laughs> dancing and singing and clapping and rejoicing. I think we're a little reserved for that but there should be more joy, shouldn't there? Uh, and it's not just about modern music, is it? Uh, some of the words of old hymns uh, are the ones that bring tears to my eyes as I sing them. Let's be joyful. Let's express it. Uh, songs old and new that convey the joy of God living and visiting us. God has been incredibly good. Let's celebrate as we meet together and as we live with his spirit in us and among us. That's how we respond when God comes to visit Let's pray. Our Heavenly, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible privilege that we can't begin to understand that Jesus lives in us. If we are Christian, if we've come to him, if we believe in him, then he is the vine and we are the branches. We remain in him and bear fruit. 
His Spirit walks with us day by day. Amazing. Lord, we thank you that your Spirit washes us clean. Your Spirit satisfies our thirst. Your Spirit guides and equips and empowers us. Help us to respond with joy and obedience for Jesus' honour and glory. Amen.